Please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. You can also follow along on page 6 of your bulletin. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of God. Verse 44 is where we get the term kiss of death. It's a betrayal of intimacy. Here, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, wants a disciple. He comes with a sword. And so in these hours during Jesus' arrest, we see two kingdoms. Two realities at work, at play. And so there are three points today. One, uh, we see Judas's reality or Judas's kingdom, the kingdom in which Judas lived in. Secondly, is Jesus's reality, Jesus's kingdom, the reality that Jesus lived in. And lastly, how do you get into that reality? How do you get into Jesus's reality? Judas's kingdom, Jesus's kingdom, how do you get into that kingdom, Jesus's kingdom? First, we're going to look at Jesus, Judas's Judas's kingdom reality. First, we look at verse 43. Judas appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and elders. Now, Judas expected a fight. Here's Jesus in the garden praying, and Judas expected a fight. He expected resistance, or else he wouldn't have come like that. How do you know that? Because in the Bible, swords represented power. Swords represent the authority of the king. Jesus, while he was on earth, he often talked about two types of kings, two types of kingdoms, the kingdom of the heaven, of heaven and the kingdom of the world. Now, what is a kingdom? We live in a democracy. We don't live in a kingdom. But a kingdom represents order, the order of one authority. The kingdom represents uh, the administration of one authority, totalitarian authority. In other words, when a new king comes in, he brings with him a new administration. It's going to roll through and roll over the old administration. When he comes in, he's going to challenge you to redefine, to reorder the things that you value, the things that you love. And this passage shows us what's at the top of Judas's reality and what's really at the top, the priority of the kingdom of the world, our visible reality. It's the sword. Power, wealth, status, your pedigree, education, the influence you have, your reputation, your strength, your gifts. In verse 43, Judas shows up with what? 
a crowd. That's social power. That's political power. He shows up with swords and clubs. That's strength, might, military power, your influence. He sent, he sent, those things are sent from the chief priests. That's religious power. The teachers of the law and the elders, the educated, the cultural elite. That's cultural power. These are all power plays. And Judas is going to arm himself with everything he's got. Verses 44 to 45, Judas, he comes up and he kisses Jesus. It's really an act of independence. That betrayal is an act of independence. What he's now saying is, Haha, before you used to be up here and I used to be down here, and now we're equals. It's all about power. We want that power. We grasp for that power. We fight one another for that power. Why do we, or how do we, come with uh, swords and the crowd? Well, think about this. Why do we do this? Because if the world is all there is, then we're always going to use our wealth. If the world is all there is, and there's nothing beyond that, then we're always going to use something. It's going to be our wealth. It's going to be our politics, our status, our influence, our religion, our religiosity, even our goodness, our education, our popularity, our rep reputations. These are the things that we're going to use to get ahead in life. These are the things that we're going to use to say, yes, I'm okay. We validate ourselves. We justify ourselves using these things. It's a way of gaining equal ground. It's a way of gaining equal footing. And we're, it's always going to be a fight. Judas came armed because that's the natural, instinctive way that any of us here in this room believe we're going to get anywhere in life. In a worldly kingdom, the sword is our reality. In fact, the sword is our priority. You've got to compete. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. So you've got to compete. You've got to step over people at times. It's just a casualty of war. Sun Tzu, the art of war, Right? You're going to step all over people. You're going to avoid certain types of people. You're going to try to get in and navigate to get in with the right people. And you're going to work very, very hard. And when you feel that slipping away from you, you get anxious. When you feel that you've lost it, you get depressed. It's all self-serving. And we live in a time where, this, where the sword is real. Wars today are fought over what? Religion, race, policies. And we live in the most overworked, polarized society in, that America has ever seen, probably since the days of the Civil War. But Jesus Christ, he rejects the sword. In verses 48 to 49, he says, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with swords and clubs? In the Greek, what he's asking is, am I a violent person? Have you ever known me to be violent? Have you ever known me to be a revolutionary, bringing violence and terrorism to the, to the world? Because if you're going to come at me with swords and clubs, then you don't get me. You don't understand me. The sword is not my priority. Well, what was Jesus' priority? What, what was his reality? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. What are the values of the kingdom of God? When you look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Luke, Luke chapter 6, Matthew chapter 5, you see this, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are when men hate you. Blessed are when you're excluded, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. 
The Sermon on the Mount demonstrates the character of the values of God's kingdom. A citizen of heaven looks like this. What do you see? It's the complete opposite of the kingdom of the world. It's a complete reversal of the, kingdom, the values of the world. In other words, Christians value what the world looks down on. And Christians are skeptical of the, what the world looks up to. Christians deep prioritize the things that the world values. And Christians prioritize the things that the world devalues. The world values power and wealth, your status, your pedigree, your success, your popularity. But what does God value? God values weakness, powerlessness, helplessness, humility. It goes against all of our natural instincts. It's a complete reversal of what the world values. In verse 47, and John's gospel elaborates this further, that when men, these men seized Jesus to arrest him, Peter drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus, and he cut off his ear. Now, Peter is Jesus' disciple. He knew about, Jesus, about God's kingdom. He's heard and he's been taught about God's kingdom. But as soon as he's placed in this situation with swords, what does he do? What happens? His instincts take over. His natural instincts, he draws a sword. Think about the many ways that that plays out in your life. I mean, we could sit here and worship, and we can worship and praise God. Our hands are lifted very high, and the moment you go back to your room, the moment you go back to your house, the moment you are with your spouse, the moment you are just outside of this place, what do we do? We draw the sword. It's all about power and boasting. It's all about our gifts and our strengths, our self-reliance, self-preservation, survival, we say. It's why, think about the many ways this plays out. In your relationships, who you get into a relationship with, who you choose to surround yourself with, why you choose to be in a relationship with a particular person, why you've pursued your education the way you do. And some of us, I mean, it's taken a toll. It's taken a toll on our lives. What job you pursue, how you get that job, how you move up, the career path, which one is right for you. Some of us are miserable in our careers. But we got to stay there because of the status it offers. We just assume that this is the way to do it. It's instinctive, it's natural. But then Jesus Christ says in verse 49, the scriptures must be fulfilled. In other words, that's not natural to me. That's what he says. I didn't come to subvert the kingdoms of the world with my sword. I came to submit to the authority of the king that is my father. I didn't come to subvert you with a hammer, with a club. I came to convert you with my love. I came to obey. I came to submit. I came to fulfill God's will. I've come to empty myself, not seize power. I've come to give up power. That's true power. I've come to surrender. That's true victory. I've come to give away and give away and give away. That's the way to true wealth, true riches. How do you do that? The world says, I need to advance at your cost. 
I need to use you in a sense. We surround ourselves with people essentially out of convenience a lot of times because they get us to help us get some places. Maybe they're wise and they, they're good mentors and they're going to help us get from one place to another. But it's really to fulfill our advancement where Jesus Christ, he says, in my kingdom, I put others ahead of myself. It's your advancement, others' advancement at my cost. So Jesus says, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to give up my wealth. The high king has come down. I'm going to sacrifice my life. I'm going to forsake my reputation. I'm going to die. There's a secular Irish scholar named W.E.H. Leckie. He wrote uh, an, an interesting book. It's called The History of European Morals. And I'm going to just read you a snippet here. He basically says that the character of Jesus, this is a secular author, he says a char- the character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice and ex- exerted such a deep influence, so deep an influence that maybe it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. What is he saying? In other words, you want to see peace in the world? What do we, what's the cost of peace in the world? I mean, we battle and fight. We say, this is the way to do it. W.E.H. Leckie says, this is a secular scholar, he says, No one has taught us and brought us into the key of finding peace more than Jesus Christ himself. His character and three short years of active life and ministry has done more than all the musings of philosophers and scholars and moralists. It's powerful. But that's a hard life. It's impossible without God. That's really hard. It goes against our natural instincts. Because rather than battling someone else, which is natural, rather than competing with somebody else, which is natural, now you've got to battle yourself. You are just beating yourself up in a sense because you want something, you're restraining yourself from something, you want to pull out the sword, and you're, you're battling yourself to put it back. That's what you're doing. You're battling yourself. You're battling your pride. You're battling your instincts. So what happens at the end is you become weaker because you're submissive. You become poorer because you're giving. You become quieter. You're listening when people are trying to hurt you. The scholar, W.H. Leckie, he's saying that on one hand, that's going to change the world. It's revolutionary. No one has ever taught us that better and more than Jesus. But on the other hand, it's incredibly impossible without God's power in your life. It's difficult, he says. The disciple Peter, he lived with Jesus. He, taught, uh, he was taught by Jesus. He followed Jesus. But the moment he sees that armed crowd, I mean, he's been living with Jesus. The moment he sees the armed crowd, he reverts to his natural instincts. He reverts to the sword. What does that tell you? You could be around people who are abiding by Jesus and never really abide by Jesus. You can be with people who hear Jesus' words and never really hear his words. You can be surrounded by people who are praising and encountering Jesus daily, and yet you never praise or encounter Jesus at all in your life. You can be surrounded in a crowd of people who are living out the gospel and never truly understand not only what the gospel is, but what it merely means to live it out. You are powerless in your life. That's what it means. You can be surrounded by people who experience Jesus, maybe even are on the leadership team uh, to help and nurture people who are experiencing Jesus and never really experience Jesus. 
On the one hand, Peter, he wants to live out Jesus' reality. But his natural inclination is to fight, to demonstrate his power, his strength. First, it was, it was the power of his, of his arm, right? And then it was the power of his legs, right? We so desperately want to stay in our reality. That, that need to stay in our reality is so strong. That's us. I mean, we say we see the gospel, we say we get the gospel, we say we love Jesus, we say we want to follow Jesus. We say, well, we, we, don't use, we use Christian language. I'm convicted to do that, right? We say, and then something happens, and it's like we're on autopilot, we draw our sword. Why? Because although we say we love Jesus, although we try to follow Jesus, it's only to the degree that you can have Jesus with one hand and hold your sword with the other. In the end, we still define ourselves by our wealth, our education, our status, our power, and our success. Those are the things that we really value. So we say we follow Jesus. We say we love Jesus. We're actually living like Jesus, Judas. We come bearing the sword. We're actually living like Peter here in this narrative. Now, what does it mean then to value weakness? One, it means that when you see a weak person, when you see a rejected people, you value them. You're going to use your power. You're going to use your, use your strength. You're going to use your voice to value them, to lift them up, to sacrifice for them, to include them, to befriend them, and to not look down on them, to not condescend on them. I mean, we have people here who've grown pretty successful and the in immediate instinct is what? I see people around me who are not that successful. Oh, it's my mission to tell this person the wonderful wisdom that I can offer about how to get there. And you think that's godly. I'm telling you right now, that's why you left the church a long time ago. And we're creating a de-churched people here in this church if that's what you're doing for tomorrow's generation. To not show indifference to people who are weaker. You know why? Because God moves toward the weak. And so you want to be where weakness is. No matter where you are in your life, no matter how much money you have in your retirement portfolio, you always want to have a posture of weakness. Because it doesn't matter how much you have, it doesn't matter how strong you are, it's never enough to get yourself back into the presence of God on your own. Now, when you start to have an eye for the weak, when you start to have an eye for the poor, when you start to do that, you start to actually become that. You start to identify with that. There's great compassion, there's great love. It's almost like the weakness of the people that you're serving transfers to you in a sense. Think about your social circles. In high school, the more you get close to an outcast or the more you're drawn to somebody who's unattractive or unpopular, it's almost like they have a social disease. People have kind of cast them out. Social lepers, we say, right? And there's a good chance that the more you hang with people like that, right, there's a good chance that their social disease starts to transfer to you. And so in the same way, you can't get involved with a hurting person without it affecting you in some way. Think about it. 
The more you hang out with somebody who's just emotionally, just, just traumatized, you become emotionally drained. You can't get involved with somebody who's financially hurting without some, some of that impacting you, in a sense. If you care, it's going to impact your finances. If you invest in somebody with a bad reputation, it's going to impact your reputation to some degree. Yet, when you are free from the world's values, you become free of those eyes that are looking at you. You're no longer a slave to your popularity. You're no longer a slave to people's approval of you. You're no longer a slave to your comfort. You're no longer a slave to your wealth. You're no longer a slave to your reputation anymore. And that makes you a very resilient and versatile person, even if people walk away. You see, when the gospel sets you free, it doesn't set you free in a sense, well, well now I have license to be able to live any way I want. I mean, in a sense, you won't be penalized if you do live that way, if you're truly a Christian. But you see, what happens is when the gospel sets you free, God's spirit enters into your life, and it sets you free to live in accordance with the way that you were designed to live as God's child. So on one hand, you won't be penalized if you just kind of go off the rails, if you are a believer. But think about it. You don't. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit has set you free to live the way you were built to live. It, he optimizes you, in a sense. He rebuilds you. You have new life. And that new life is free to live the way you were designed by your creator, whose image you were built to reflect. You're free to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. Take two people. They both have great jobs, great education, uh, but they're both about to get hit catastrophically in their career in a way that's just unrecoverable. It's going to hit their salary. It's going to probably lead to some demotions or firings. It's definitely going to impact their lifestyle. Their career has basically hit a limit. Socially, that's going to impact not only professionally in the social world, but socially just in general. People are going to know this person as the person who failed. Something bad happened to this person. Now think about this. If you're living in a worldly kingdom, it's going to be like your life is over. It leads immediately to anxiety and depression. Some of us are living that reality every day in your career right now. I mean, you're not high enough where it's going to catastrophically end your career, but that's what you're afraid of, and that's how you live your life every day in fear, and that makes you an angry and frustrated and fatigued person. That kind of person is not very winsome. That kind of person is not very sensitive. That kind of person is not identifying with the weaker. That kind of person is not going to sit there and befriend the lower. You see that? And what you're going to do is, you, if you, you're, it's like your life is over because it's based on wealth. Your life is based on wealth and status and power. That's what gives you life. What you're saying is, that's what makes me feel alive. That's what makes me exist. That's why I'm here. That's what makes me feel real. That's your visible reality. That's your reality. And since your wealth and your status and your power and your reality, because you have it, you're so afraid to lose it, Number one, if it's gone, if something catastrophic happens in your career and you lose those things, you don't exist anymore. You are gone. 
you're not real, so what do you do? I am never going to put myself in a position where I will ever experience that again. So what you do, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work. I don't care if I have to step over people to get ahead. I'm going to do whatever I can because I've got a number in mind. And one day I'm going to be able to say, I hit that number and I'm going to walk out of here. And now my life is mine. You are a slave. And that will change you. That will shape you. You're going to become a jerk to your coworkers. You're going to lord over people because they are only stepping stones to get you ahead. See, when you're, in, when, you're, when you're the low guy, you get stepped on. When you rise, what happens is now you have the opportunity to utilize other people's gifts for your glory. That's how it works. Some of you are there. You understand. You lose sight of the things that are really real, your character, your integrity, your health. You overwork, so you start to lose your family, your friendships. Now everyone's fake around you. They're afraid of you. They're all walking on eggshells. Among your friends, you surround yourself with people who basically just boast. They celebrate your success, celebrate their own. Meanwhile, you're competing with them. You're jealous for them. But in the end, you're filled with anxiety. You're depressed. You're, you're fearing losing what makes you feel alive. And what happens is when you lose those things, you're living in shame because there's a shame and there's this lament because you've lost big. And, and now there's this exposure. It's like you're naked. Now everyone sees you. And they see you for the fraud that you are. And they see you all this hard work to get to that point. You've lost it all. And that's what you're known as. That's what you've been relying on. And it's gone. But then there's this other person whose values are shaped by the gospel, shaped by the kingdom of God. You know already life is hard. You know already this world is dangerous. You know already that this world is a difficult place to live in, a difficult place to thrive in. You know you're helpless on your own, but you also know God's power and that God moves towards the weak. There is no amount of money that will ever shield you from illness. There is no amount of wealth that you can accumulate to shield you and cure you of cancer. There is no amount of status or highness that you can ever get to where you are free from any type of danger in this world or in this society. You see that? There's no amount of, of savings that you can accumulate that's going to shield you from sorrow and loss and death. The things that, in fact, are the most important to you, you can't purchase. You can't earn. You only lose in this world. And you know God works then, so you are utterly helpless no matter how much you have. And so you know that God moves towards the weak. He moves towards the broken. He moves towards people with compassion and love and pity, no matter how much you have or no matter how much you lack. But when you lack, when you've lost, and you're in that broken place, you know that God moves towards you. And God's kingdom in that moment becomes more real to you. You have an opportunity that most wealthy people don't have right away. You have the opportunity be because you have lost 
to experience God's presence right there in that moment. God's kingdom can become more real to you in that moment. And so what happens is, when you live that as a lifestyle, even in plenty, God's values become way more important. Your values become less. They become challenged. So a Christian becomes very skeptical of himself. We like to play that game. We like to game the system. We like to use Christian language to kind of justify all the things that we want. We're good at that. We're actually not that good. Most of your close friends already know. That's, you know that. I mean, if, when you take a step outside of yourself and think about it, you're like, oh, like, why did I say that? They know. They know. They got me. You know? A Christian becomes very skeptical of himself. Why do I want this job, really? Why do I really want this job? Why do I really need to have that number? Why, do I, why am I working so hard to get that promotion right now? Why do I want that relationship so badly, that person so badly? A Christian says, my wealth, my reputation, my status, my advancement, these are all good things. A Christian does not say those are bad things. Those are great things. Trust me, if I had the choice between being one or the other, I'll be this. I'll, have, I'll take money. I'll take status. I'll take power. Of course, those are good things. In and of themselves, they're not sinful. But you don't need them to define you. And so you won't need to fight for them because they don't define you. You don't ever need to draw your sword. In fact, if you lose it, it was a blessing that God gave you and a blessing that you don't have right now. You can lament. It's okay to lament, but the lament comes to an end. You don't sit there and crave the glory days and work to re-experience those glory days. You don't need to fight others. You can walk away. You know why? Psalm 73. The psalmist in Psalm 73 had experienced something very similar. Here's his conclusion. Who am I? Who am, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, God's presence is what makes me alive. So God's presence is what I need. And he doesn't tell me to work for it. He tells me to rest in it. He gives me real worth. He is what makes me feel real. He is eternal and everlasting. His grace in plenty or in want is all I need, so it's all I want to pursue because it's all that's going to last. You know what happens? The sword goes away. The sword is gone. There's no more fighting. There's no more defensiveness. There's no more self-justifying, self-preservation. There's no more depression when there's loss. There's lament, but it's proportional, and it comes to an end. There's no anxiety. Yes, you're going to work, but you're not a slave to your work. Yes, you're going to live in this world. Yes, you're going to own some nice things, but you're not going to be a slave to those nice things. You don't need those things all the time. Of course, there are going to be seasons where you have to work. Some of you are right now in, in these seasons. But look, I'm going to tell you something. If that season lasts many, 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 many seasons. It's not just a season. It's a lifestyle. It's a season without limits. That's called slavery. You know what slavery is? It's a lifetime of work. It's a lifestyle of work. 
So a Christian, because he values what, God's, what God values, he can say, I can make less. I can give more. Sometimes I'm going to be taken advantage of because of the gospel. There are times when I may get excluded. It doesn't feel good. There are times when I'm going to get mocked. I don't look for it. There are times when, I mean, the world is a place of suffering, but sometimes I'm going to suffer because I'm a Christian. Sometimes I'm going to get passed over because I'm a Christian, essentially because I demonstrate Christian character. It's a choice you make because of what you value, because of the citizenship of the kingdom that you live in. That's the beginning of real influence and real power because you've placed other people ahead of yourself, other people's interests ahead of yourself. That is Jesus' reality. In the world, you lament because you've lost something. But what you do is now you're going to long to reclaim it. I'm going to work for it. I'm going to do whatever I can to never experience that again. But in Jesus' kingdom, you're going to lament because you're lost. But it's going to make you long for heaven and eternity more. How do you get there? How are you going to get there? In verse 50, everyone deserts Jesus. Everybody abandons Jesus and runs away. And there's kind of a little non sequitur. It almost seems like a non sequitur in this passage. It's a little funny. Uh, but in verse 51, there's this young man who's a follower of Jesus. Essentially, he was a disciple of Jesus. But he's so cowardly, he tries to save himself so badly that when they, get, when they grab him, he's wearing this linen garment. He squeezes and squirms out of that garment, and he runs away naked. Why is this in the Bible? Is Mark trying to tell us a joke and lighten up the situation in the midst of one of the, you know, the most important disasters, the most painful sorrows that, that he's actually pointing to and writing about? Why is it in the Bible? One, Mark is not writing fiction. You wouldn't write fiction this way. Mark is writing news. He's telling us what happened. But secondly, and probably more importantly, nakedness in the Bible is a sign of shame. Now, in the end, we don't know who this person was. Scholars have guesses. We don't know. Who, in the end, the Bible doesn't say, so we don't really know. But think about this. Here's a man. He's young. He's naked, self-serving, running out of the garden in failure and shame. Does that remind you of anything? Scholars say that this man was actually Mark himself. There are a lot of scholars who believe that this is Mark himself because who else was left in the garden at that point? to tell this story, right, um, unless he was there, <laughs> right, unless, I mean, he wasn't there because he was gone, like, well, right, and, and Mark was actually, Mark was actually a disciple of one of the disciples who wrote this, right, um, but they say that he might have been there himself because he's saying, essentially, I was there, I was fearing for my life, I failed Jesus in the worst way, I'm willing to do shameful things to save myself, the reality is we don't really know who this was. I personally don't think it was Mark. I don't, the reality is we don't know who it was, but why was the passage here? Why is this young man, this naked man, is running out of the garden, why is it included? Mark is trying to remind us about another garden. Way back in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, there was another garden, Eden. There was another test. There was another failure. And the result was hiding and shame. And they were driven out. Adam was driven out of the garden in shame. He had failed God. 
he was exposed. So this man in this garden points us to remind us of another man, Adam. You know who Adam is? I mean, why, does, why is it that when Adam sinned, we all sinned? One simple way to explain that is to say that if the history of the world and all of its people were to take a vote and choose one man to represent them as the perfect person to represent humankind, we would have unanimously chosen Adam. He was that perfect. It was so perfectly obvious. There was no doubt. And yet Adam failed. He failed. And so that is a reminder, that guilt is transferred to us. That is a reminder of our shame. But then we remember Jesus. Jesus was in this garden. And what do you see of Jesus? Integrity. He is whole. He promised, not my will, your will be done. And so when the accusers came, what do you see? He's poised. He's whole. He passes the test. He doesn't try to save himself. In fact, he says, put down your sword. That's amazing. Why did he do that? And it's because Jesus' test here was a mere, it's a minor test, a small quiz compared to the infinitely greater test that he's about to face, the ultimate test. Everybody else, they ran. Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid to die. They were afraid of the sword. But Jesus Christ, look at his poise. Look at the calm of Jesus. Look at the restraint of Jesus. I mean, just minutes prior, you guys were here last week? Just minutes prior, he was praying to God, his father saying, take this cup from me. I'm overwhelmed. He was falling apart. I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. But not my will, not what I will, what you will. The cup that he was referring to is the wrath of the justice of God as a penalty for our sins. And Jesus says, take it from me, but not what I will, what you will. And once the arresters came, he was poised. He knew the world is a dangerous place. And that by coming here, he would be exposed. Once he was arrested, he was calm. Why? Because the worldly sword was never the issue for him. That's not what he was afraid of. It's something to be afraid of, but that's not what he was really afraid of. Jesus Christ was about to face something far worse than the worldly sword. See, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, they were driven out, what was placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden? It was a sword, a flaming sword. In other words, no one would ever get back into the garden again because you've lost the presence of God. You've lost the, the love of God. And so now we are going to die trying to get into the garden on our own. That's why the sword is there. The sword is there to represent saying it is a barrier between you and God, and there's no way that you will ever get in there on your own lest you fall to the sword and die. 
And so we are working and working and working to try. What we're doing is we're always working. We're slaving over our wealth to accumulate status and power. We're fighting other people to get ahead. We're trying to get back into the garden on our own, apart from God. We're trying to feel worthy enough to come before God and say, let me back into your presence. Look what I have done. Look who I am. And yet we're doing it apart from God, without God. The sword represents the justice or the wrath of the power of God who has all kingly authority. And Jesus' disciples, when they saw the worldly sword, they ran. But it was a much lesser sword. Jesus is in the garden because he's about to face the ultimate sword. The sword of God's ultimate justice and wrath. He was pierced for our transgressions. And yet he stood firm still for you. He stood firm. He was about to enter in and become the sacrifice. And yet he stood firm. The author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, says this, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure, no matter what the storm, no matter what the turbulence and the tornado and the crashing and the howling winds and the rains in your life, you have an anchor that is firm and secure, and you are tethered to that anchor. What does that mean? It's one thing to just serve the poor, help the sick, in a sense, what you're doing is you're giving up your wealth when you're serving the poor and helping your sick. sick, sick. You're, um, you're risking illness in doing that. A lot of our front, uh, front uh, line uh, folks here uh, who are serving, you would understand you're risking illness every day, especially the last couple years. But you're also risking your reputation in a sense when you're serving and helping the poor and the sick. And it's tiring and it's oftentimes frustrating because what you're doing is you, when you're doing that, you're taking on someone else's poverty. You're taking on someone else's illness. And there's just so many more. And you realize you can't handle this all on your own. You know what you're doing? That frustration and the complaining and the, you know, we end up drawing our sword. Why isn't anyone helping? Why doesn't anybody get this? I mean, politics is arranged around this. Why isn't anyone helping? Why can't we just help? Why can't we just give? Tax us. We say, I don't know if we really say that, but, you know, that's what we're trying to say in some ways, right? You're still trying to get into the garden with your own goodness. That's one thing, but it's another thing to see yourself as the poor. That's the posture I'm talking about. It's another thing to say, I am the one that is sick unto death. I have no escape. This is terminal. I'm practically dead. I'm a dead person that's just breathing his last breath. And yet because of the Father's love for you, Jesus Christ comes down and he takes our place. You see it here? Everyone else escapes, but Jesus gets arrested. Jesus gets caught. Everyone else gets away. Jesus gets caught. Everyone else failed. Jesus passed, and yet he's going to pay the penalty. You see that? Everyone else deserved to die in a sense. We deserve to, su to die. But Jesus Christ suffered and died. Not to be a moral example. Not to be some sort of rabbi and teacher. But to be our substitute. He's our substitute. And the author of Hebrews says, that sacrifice is our hope. And it is our anchor. But what about my wealth? I mean, I've been working so hard for this. I need security, right? Jesus Christ gave up the inheritance of the kingdom of God so that you will be called his son. But what about my status? Jesus Christ, by coming near to you, 
gave up his status. Our social disease, our, our status, our, our diseased status was transferred to him and we become heirs of the king. But what about power? We need power. It's a dangerous world, you said. On the cross, Jesus Christ became ultimately weak so you would have power. What about my reputation? I've worked so hard to build this. I'm a good person. Or maybe I'm a good-looking person, some of us say. Jesus Christ, do you know, he was beaten so badly by the time he got to the cross, he was practically unrecognizable as a man. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. I'm disowned. Why? So that we could be owned. I've become disowned as a son so that we could become sons. I've become cast out, rejected, forsaken so that we would be brought in, accepted, approved, loved. I've lost my sonship so that we could become children of God. But Donnie, I'm filled with shame. Jesus Christ was stripped naked. Shame represents shame. He was stripped naked, the ultimate shame. God himself turned his face from his, father, from his son. Why? So that no matter where you are, no matter what shame you've endured, let it go. There is dignity in Christ. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. There's the wealth and the status and the power that you've been working for all your life. There's the wealth and the status and power that you could never earn, that will always last. It's what we're looking for, the validation that we need. Jesus Christ had every reason to come with his own sword. He had every power to be able to come with his own sword, but instead he stood defenseless for his people in their place and faced the ultimate justice of the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, he had no sin, become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so in the book of Revelation, we are clothed in white robes. We are clothed in righteousness. You are forgiven. You are free. That is the power to be free from the grip of the worldly kingdom. The gospel shows us how you look at your wealth, how you look at your status, your reputation, your power, all these things, your relationships. The gospel shapes this, reshapes this. You reorder things. They're great. It's important. They're good things. They're blessings if you have it but I'm not gonna kill myself and enslave myself to, to, so that I don't, I don't lose it. I don't need this, I can walk away from this. How powerful is God's kingdom? No matter what you lack here, you're always going to be rich in Jesus, so you will never feel truly poor. That is power. That leads to an unshakable confidence and courage. And because you haven't earned it for yourself on your own, there's nothing to boast over. There's a lightness. You can laugh at yourself when you make mistakes instead of being so defensive and just tightly wound. You can have joy in the fullness of the kingdom, resilience and versatility. Why? Because no matter the storm, you have Christ as an anchor for your soul. Yes, life is hard. Friends, I'm gonna tell you, it gets harder. It gets a lot harder. In many dimensions, it gets overwhelming at times. 
but you'll learn that life isn't all there is. And that's gonna remove and take away your swords. It disarms you. We're about to come to the table. I want you this week as we enter into Holy Week. It's a time of great spiritual renewal. For this week, will you take a moment daily to reflect, we're providing you devotions, reflect on the person and work of Jesus for you. And not only did he do it for you, he brought you into a community that, that he is the head. It's a broken community. It's not meant to be perfect here. But Christ is renewing it and restoring it and renewing you and restoring you through it. So don't just do community because it fulfills you. I want you to go to Christ this week. I want you to reflect on and coming with a posture of weakness and brokenness this week. I want you to be sober in your relationships this week. It's a calling to be sober, sober-minded, alert, resting in Christ. And it's not like, oh, I'm just going to beat myself up because I'm bad. I want you to reflect on that as the past and look to Christ in the now and the glory that he adorns you with today and forevermore. It's beautiful today. It's glorious tomorrow. I want you to remember that as we come to the table. The power of the gospel enables us to be weak. When we're like, I need to be strong here, the power of the gospel says, no, you can be weak here so that I can move towards you because that's what you need and you get the presence of Jesus in your life, then it will shape you. Oh, we hate it. Sometimes we're resistant to it because it embarrasses us. It humiliates us. That, that means I have to be lower. That means I want to fight back. I want to I win. And yet now we're going to surrender. And what happens is now you're living in this greater reality. It's a real reality. You know what that births you? It births real fruit in your life. Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Did I get it all? Self-control. I think it's out of order. The fruit of the Spirit, it births that in your life. That's how you engage then and live in the world today. Put down your sword. Let's pray.